Good morning. I'm Leslie Thatcher. 806 on this Thursday. It's March 9th, 15 degrees, currently here in Old Town Park City. And ooh, where's the sunglasses? On the phone with us from the ABC Forecast <laughs> Center, meteorologist Thomas Geeboy. Good morning. Good morning, Leslie. We haven't needed the sunglasses a lot in the last couple of weeks, but today is definitely a day to use them. And it's going to be a bluebird day up in the mountains. So I'm going to encourage anybody that's listening, get outside and enjoy today because as quickly as we get a calm day, we know that it's not going to be sticking around. But once we see the active weather move in, we're going to see it stick around for quite a minute. But as we go through today in Park City, after our chilly start, we'll see a daytime high of 35 degrees. So while it's still a little bit below average, it's still going to be a pretty nice day in the Wasatch back. Mostly sunny skies through at least the first portion of the day. But as we get into this evening, cloud coverage will start to increase. So what's happening is high pressure is building in right now. It's not going to be sticking around. It's going to quickly move its way from west to east. There's an upper level low pressure off the Pacific Northwest. We're already seeing moisture filling into California in association with the atmospheric river. And by tomorrow, that's going to be moving its way into our neighborhood. So as we go through tonight, mostly cloudy skies, the overnight low only dropping to 27 degrees. And that's because we're going to see a southerly flow ahead of the system tomorrow working its way in. And temperatures will continue to trend upwards. But as we go into tonight, the chance for wet weather will also begin to increase. And during the overnight hours, we will have a pretty decent chance for snow in Park City, which means... The Friday morning commute could get a little bit messy, but throughout the day tomorrow, as that warmer air continues to filter in with that strong southerly wind, the daytime high will climb to 40 degrees. So while I think most of the day we'll have a chance of seeing snow in Park City, there will be at least a chance that we could see a wintry mix or maybe even some rain. So tomorrow, with daytime high of 40 degrees, could get a little bit soggy. And then into Friday night, rain and snow going to continue. The overnight low dropping to 28. So if we are seeing any rain, that will likely transition back over to straight snow. And basically from Friday through Friday night, it's about a 90 to 100 percent chance that we're going to be talking about wet weather. The temperatures won't be quite as warm on Saturday, but we'll still see mid to upper 30s. But we're still mainly looking at the chance for snow showers in both Saturday and Sunday, about a two and three chance for snow both days. A little bit less of a chance for our Saturday night. And then going into Sunday night, we'll see mostly cloudy skies as we get maybe a little bit of a break in the weather. And I think the most part on Monday We'll have a slight chance, but that chance not doesn't look to be all too high, less than a 50-50 chance with a daytime high that will go back into the low 40s. And then going into the early and middle stretches of next week, daytime highs will continue to range into the upper 30s and low 40s. I think we'll be a little bit chillier on Wednesday, but snow will be a possibility on Tuesday with the best chance being during the second half of the day. And then snow looking likely on Wednesday with the system coming in between Tuesday and Wednesday. That could be another significant system like the one that we're going to see tomorrow. So we got a lot more active weather heading our way, Leslie. Yeah. Um, and we're already talking about uh, flooding, so we're going to need to keep that on our horizons. I mean, or just the lower level elevations at this point. Well, the, with the chance for even seeing rain in Park City with a high of around 40, uh, if we start to see rain uh, rather than snow, then that obviously could be some issues. But especially for elevations a little bit lower than Park City, that could possibly become a bigger issue. So that is definitely something that we'll be keeping a very close eye on over the next several days. Okay. Thomas, thank you. You're welcome. And with a look in the backcountry and the fun with us from the Utah Avalanche Forecast Center, we have Nikki. Good morning, Nikki. Good morning. So we've got a lot of snow and wind and warm temperatures on the way. Uh, yesterday was pretty quiet in the backcountry. There was one report of a cornice fall um, that then entrained some new snow and created a small avalanche. Today, we've got two things to think about. The first is going to be the new snow. So we've got hard slab and soft slab avalanches. They could break one to three feet deep within many layers of the new snow from the last week or two and overnight. 
Um, all things considered, we've got a pretty solid snowpack, but we just keep getting all these storms. And there's some other interfaces within from crusts to rime crusts to softer layers, and we're seeing some avalanches um, a little bit deeper in the snow. So the main takeaway for the new snow is there's a ton of it. And as we add some stressors in the form of wind, snow, and potentially rain over the next few days, these new snow avalanches could break either directly on the new snow, old snow interface or a little bit deeper. So continue to give them some leeway. Um, if the sun comes out midday, which it sounds like it could um, midday into early afternoon, it wouldn't take a ton for the new snow to warm quickly and begin producing some small wet loose avalanches on steep southwest, south and southeast facing slopes today. So any of the solars. So if you start seeing the snow surface getting wet, that could be snowballs or pinwheels rolling downhill it's time to kind of get off those solar aspects. Uh, the second problem to think about today is the wind drifted snow. So winds have uh, picked up overnight and they're gonna continue to rise into the evening. We could see gusts up to 90 miles per hour uh, late tonight. So that's gonna continue to form fresh slabs of wind drifted snow along all upper elevations and mid elevation leeward terrain. They're gonna be generally shallow, but they could be enough to uh, sweep a rider off their feet. Uh, like I talked about, there was a cornice triggered avalanche yesterday. Um, as we get those warm temperatures and more snowfall, we could start to see more cornices breaking naturally. So if you're traveling in the backcountry, give cornices a wide berth. And then one thing that I wanna talk about that's not directly related to the avalanche problems right now is tree wells, snow immersion and roof avalanches. We've gotten a ton of snow. We've heard kind of stories of people um, having close calls with tree wells and snow immersion over the last uh, few weeks. So give those tree wells a uh, wide berth. And then as we get these warm temperatures and potentially uh, rain, our city, anybody who has considerable snowfall on their roofs should be extra cautious going into the weekend. So today there's gonna be an overall moderate danger. Okay. Hey, thanks, Nikki. Well, as we reported, the Summit County Council held a final public hearing regarding the Dakota Pacific application last night. is scheduled to vote on the application at its meeting next Wednesday, March 15th. Candace Hart, again, uh, who served as a member of the Snyderville Basin Planning Commission, saw this project, then elected to the Summit County Council starting his term in January. He's here, of course, as a member of the Summit County Search and Rescue, and we're going to ask you to put on your county council hat now. Um, First, the, the, we heard often last night that um, affordable housing is, uh, this project is important because of the affordable housing it offers. But real quick, I mean, it still seems like you've got to make um, a pretty decent annual income to be able to, to live here, no? No, you're right, Leslie. Uh, and I, you're correct also in that, you know, the common theme of anyone who supported the project or anyone who gave some support, it was always centered around affordable housing. So that seems to be the piece that the community is rallying behind that they recognize they want and need. And that's part of what we heard last night. One of the challenges when it comes to affordable housing is we tend to, the way you look at it and the way it gets uh, works to the system is it's average medium income. So it's 80% AMI or 60% AMI. Well, to give some context to that, you know, an 80% of the average medium income would be a salary of 88 thousand dollars so quite often what we'll hear is hey we really want affordable housing we would like it for our you know sheriff's deputies we'd like it to get our firefighters or teachers you know the the things that you normally hear but when you look at i don't know take a firefighter an advanced emt firefighter who's been on the job for about four or five years and luckily i've had the chance to uh, do some ride-alongs and spend time with them they're making about forty four thousand uh, dollars an emt the person in an ambulance uh, a regular emt makes twelve dollars and eighty cents an hour an advanced emt by themselves might make eighteen dollars an hour 
uh, sheriff's deputies are not making $88,000 as well. So it takes a, quite a while in someone's career before they start ratcheting up here. So the disconnect quite often, because our average medium income is so high in Summit County and in the greater Park City area, when you use a measurement like 80% of that AMI, it just doesn't hit the real need. In truth, you know, we know that the way we look at, you should not be spending ideally more than 30% of your income on housing, right? And if we were using that as a metric, it would change this conversation really quite drastically. So yeah, to your point, that's one of the challenges with the affordable housing piece of this. Yeah. Um, traffic, again, another of the big issues there. And um, what we're hearing is like, well, people work from home or... Um, you know, we're, we're really trying to keep cars out of it, so we won't build as much parking as may be needed. But when you're, if you're building houses for firefighters, they need a car. If you're building houses for police officers, they need a car. Teachers maybe could take the bus. I don't know, but um, I guess I just don't understand how how we think that this is going to reduce traffic. Yeah, yeah. I, I think the common sense sort of sniff test of this, I think any person out there would just recognize if you put a lot of new construction in an area, we're going to get more traffic out of it. Interesting enough, you know, there, what gets to unpack it a little bit, what the Dakota Pacific is trying to argue <clears throat> is that this project would have less pro traffic than the other project. Not that the overall traffic would go down, but interesting enough, their own traffic study, when they presented it, something that I learned, what we used to experience, say, pre-COVID, was that during rush hour in and rush hour out of, say, Park City or in general in life, you'd have an hour that was very intense with traffic. And so I'll make up a number just to, <clears throat> to um, help frame it. But, you know, just imagine you had a thousand cars that went in at peak hour. And then the hour after rush hour, that might drop down from a thousand to, say, 800 or 500. But what's happened now that people are working from home, and this comes from Dakota Pacific's traffic study, now that people are working from home, we're actually making more traffic or uh, more trips. And so instead of having, say, a thousand cars at that peak hour, you might have 800 cars at the peak hour, but that now may last three hours. So what we're experiencing, and this I think rings true to what our experience on the ground is as residents here, we are just busy and congested more throughout the day. So instead of having a couple peak hours, now you get six hours. Then you add a lot more traffic or new cars to that. And then, well, I think everybody can see where the problem is. Another concern expressed was, where are the schools? Where are the classrooms to provide for the children who could be living here? Are we, do, do we need to look at that? Or is we just, the school district has to provide for that um, because that's what they do. This, this is an interesting one in that uh, I think that's a really good question, right? That, that seems like it would just make sense to ask that question about these services. Interesting enough, Summit County used to charge impact fees, and in particular, that was for the school district. And then the state passed a law that we can no longer do that. So you'll find that Summit County, because of the state law, is not allowed to consider the impact of schools in particular. Now, you can consider other impacts, but schools is this like no-no area. It doesn't mean the impact isn't there. And it doesn't mean that uh, it isn't something to be considered, but it can't be used in the decision-making process. And I suppose one would argue that the increased tax dollars would offset it, but it's really hard to imagine a huge project going in and not having an impact on the sheriff's department, the fire department, and everything else. A lot of criticism against the, the developer, against the backdoor dealings that uh, kind of brought this forward. Um, how do you personally then separate that um, from what you need to do as a county council member? Uh, thanks. That's a great question. You know, I think this is like where the council has taken the charge to rise above the situation, to process the application in the way we believe it should be, right? Open, fair, 
and in the public. Uh, we don't want to engage in backroom deals. We don't want to engage in, you know, lobbyists working to do something that might be uh, misconstrued or, or seen as, I don't know, not ethical, right? So for us, we're going to just rise above the occasion and we're going to process this application. And then we're going to let our county attorneys work through the legal strategy. Yeah, um, we did hear from some people saying class action lawsuit is is there and there is support for that. Is that something the council's even thinking about that we sue over this? I would say, because this is interesting, Roger made a comment, uh, the chair, Roger Armstrong, made a comment last week where, you know, the, the first rule of litigation is to not tell your strategy. So uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dance around this one. So just know that when I'm doing this, it's because there are things in play and I just can't really speak to the details of it, but we will explore all avenues and all options before us. Uh, is the vote next week a done deal, though? Uh, because we had heard Roger Armstrong say last night that two senior executives aren't going to be in the uh, the country, and they asked to, to, delay, to delay the vote? They did. Yeah, that's actually true. So uh, we received a letter from or an email from Dakota Pacific stating that John Miller and Mark Stansworth uh, would not be able to attend the meeting and asking if we push it back to the 22nd. Uh, we don't actually have a meeting on the 22nd, so we can't push it back to that week. Um, I believe at this point, what I heard uh, from the council was that we were going to stay with the schedule that we published. We'd have the meeting on the 15th. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, now, I would say there's also pieces moving around, you know, especially as it relates to the legal strategy. So I'll have to wait and see what happens. But our intention is to hold that meeting on the 15th. It will be in Colville. Uh, just because it was already scheduled there. Um, the Ledges is a very large event center, so everybody could fit if they want to come. But obviously you can join via Zoom and uh, Facebook, which might be a good way to attend that meeting. Okay. Did you hear anything new at last night's hearing? I don't know if I, I mean, here's what I heard in general. Like, you know, clearly there's a lot of opposition. So that that's rung true through each of the meetings. I would say, and we talked about this a little bit ago, but of the people that were supportive of the project or generally somewhat supportive, the common thread was always around the affordable housing. And one of the messages that you heard a lot, there was quite a few people that spoke last night that I hadn't heard from before that would say things like, you know, I, I've, I've been following this. I just haven't attended a meeting, but because of Senate Bill 84, I'm here. And they would speak out against that. But quite often they'd also say, look, if this was 100% affordable housing, I'd be willing to endure the traffic. But because this is not, and it's not really meeting the need. And so we heard a lot of that. We heard the uh, support that was there. We heard the people that obviously did not agree. But I, that is the other piece, that Senate Bill 84 really was a galvanizing point or moment for a lot of the public to really just say, hey, this is not fair, not right. And we want you as a council to stand up and fight for us. And uh, we heard that a lot as well. Real quick, wanted to mention the Pony Express Park. Some residents presenting a proposal to create what was Highland Flats there, an equestrian park there on that parcel near US 40 and I-80. Seems like a lot of logistical hurdles, but um, shouldn't this, I mean, why to the council? Shouldn't this go to the planning commission? Should, is that how it works? I mean, an application first? <clears throat> well, it, it could. Um, in this case, though, I'd say they have an idea. Mm -hmm. And they were really kind of shopping the idea to see if the council was interested in possibly donating land or, you know, what our level of interest was. And I think that's primarily what happened. What uh, the advice back to the group was, was, hey, you need to really work out your business plan. You need to model this to see that it can sustain itself. And, you know, in general, sure, if you could find a way to provide equestrian access to more people in Summit County, yeah, that's of interest, but we got to make sure that it can fund itself. It can be an expensive proposition, um, but if they can come back and show that it could work, then I think it'd be interesting to see where it goes. Okay. 
Well, the tagline is, let's get to the bottom of colon cancer. And this morning, a giant inflatable colon is starting its tour across Utah and Idaho to bring vital awareness of colon cancer. This morning, it'll be set up at the Intermountain Park City Hospital, tomorrow at the Heber City Hospital. On the phone, I have Dr. Greg Taylor, a family practice physician who's been performing colonoscopies for more than 25 years. He also serves as medical staff president at Heber Valley Hospital. Good morning. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Taylor. Good morning. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be on. Yeah, so this is uh, a first, I think, uh, an inflatable colon. Have you, have you seen it? I mean, can you tell us about it? I have not actually seen it or walked through it in person, but I've seen pictures, and it's, uh, uh, what I know is it's a 12 by 12 uh, huge inflatable colon that you can walk through, and, and it has, uh, it's kind of an interactive um, system and, and has just a lot of the things that you might see, that we might see as we do colonoscopies, uh, kind of in, in larger-than-life uh, form. So there are, like, small polyps in there that you can look at and different types of diseases that they have uh, shown up on the walls of the colon. It looks pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, and the reason they're doing this is important. Talk to us um, about the importance of colon screenings and, and why regular screenings are important. Sure, yeah. March is uh, Colon Cancer Screening uh, Awareness Month, and I, it's done for a very specific reason, and that is that colon cancer is one of the leading causes of uh, uh, cancer death uh, in the U.S. In fact, my understanding is they're expecting 153,000 Americans will be diagnosed with colon cancer in the next year. Um, the other interesting thing is the number of colon cancers in younger people, meaning uh, low 50s and even upper 40s has been increasing, even as the overall rate of colon cancer in the U.S. has been decreasing. And for that reason, uh, the newest guidelines that came out about a year ago are now suggesting that we start screening for colon cancer at age 45 for average risk adults rather than 50. And average risk adults is basically just you and me, those who have no family history, and no symptoms of colon cancer, we should start screening at age 45. Yeah, um, and as you say, this is a cancer that, if it's found early, can be treated early. How, how is that done? I mean, is it surgery always necessary, or it, it works with radiation and chemo? Or Yeah, good question. So actually, uh, all colon cancers start as, as polyps in the colon. Uh, and they're usually called tubular adenomas, and these uh, polyps then can slowly progress to colon cancer. Now, not all polyps do progress to colon cancer, but a certain small percentage do. So um, the idea behind colonoscopies and behind screening is that if we look in the colon and find these polyps before they've even turned into cancer, we actually are taking away that patient's risk for colon cancer. So it's very um, preventable. Uh, in this day and age with the, with the colon cancer screening tools and colonoscopy uh, that we have. Sometimes when we do colonoscopies, we do find early colon cancers that were unexpected. And oftentimes, if you catch this at the early stage, then it's just a matter of uh, removing that section of colon, which sounds big, but actually it's done uh, nowadays almost as an outpatient procedure. Uh, or one night in the hospital, and sometimes that's all it takes uh, to solve the problem. Once the colon cancer has started to invade the walls of the colon and especially started to metastasize to lymph nodes and other organs, it's really too late to do anything at that point. 
Yeah. And and I think uh, people maybe back off of this thinking it's not it's not the colonoscopy that I think most people are afraid of. It's the prep to do the colonoscopy. How bad is it? Yeah, it's true. Uh, the prep is always the worst part. And basically, uh, we limit some of the things you eat for a week before, like uh, uh, raw fruits and vegetables, things like that. Uh, and the day before, it just involves a clear liquid diet and a pretty aggressive clean-out. We use some Miralax and Gatorade, and, and it does just what you would think it does. It, it cleans your colon out because we need a clean colon to be able to see uh, when we do the colonoscopy. But it's, it's doable. Um, it just makes for a long night the, na- the night before. Yeah. Now, do people have to do that, or are those mail-in stool sample tests good enough? Yeah, really good question. So, yeah, there's two ways to screen for colon cancer. One is to do a colonoscopy, and if you have no risk, no family history, and we don't find a polyp, then it's every 10 years on that. So it's pretty simple. If we find polyps, it depends on how many, uh, but your screening goes to every five years or even more often. Uh, the other option to screen for colon cancer is to do, um, you've heard of Cologuard or uh, FIT tests, And these are tests where you just put a small smear of stool on a card and mail it in. It has to be ordered by your doctor, though, for that to to be run. And those are good. They are about 80% as good at detecting polyps in the colon. Um, So people always ask me, well, why wouldn't I want to do that? And it, it is a reasonable screening tool. The difference is, though, to make that effective, you really have to do it every year. And some people just really don't want to do that, you know, kind of a test yearly rather than uh, sometimes it's easier just to get the colonoscopy done and not worry about it again for 10 years. And I guess the other thing with those uh, stool tests is that if they are positive, then you have to have a colonoscopy to figure out why. And usually it's due to either a, a polyp that's bleeding or even a colon cancer. Yeah. And you mentioned like the day before or the week before not eating a lot of fruit and vegetables, but isn't um, keeping a colon healthy about eating a lot of fiber? It is, for sure, and we definitely recommend that most of the time. The reason they kind of limit the roughage that you eat bef- the week before a colonoscopy is it uh, dissolves a little slower and, and goes away slower from the colon so that when we do the colonoscopy, if people have had a lot of vegetables and nuts and seeds and things, they're still there in the colon. Uh, when we do our colonoscopy and kind of in the way and hindering our ability to see uh, the walls of the colon well. So that's the reason for that. Okay. Um, Well, we appreciate the important information. Again, um, uh, colon cancer is the third most common cancer diagnosed for men and women, the second leading cause of total cancer-related deaths, and certainly one of the most treatable cancers, but you've got to be screened for it. People are invited to the Park City Hospital between 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. to take a walk through an inflatable colon. So I appreciate your time this morning. It's my pleasure. Thank you for the offer. That's Dr. Greg Taylor. You listen